0: Being the brash, aggressive uh, young man that I was in my, in my early 30s uh, certainly has taught me an awful lot about humility uh, and the necessity for humility in the, in the practice of law. I think it's a, it's a wonderful profession that we have.
1: Hello and welcome back to Speak to a Lawyer. I'm your host, Avi Charney, and I'm a practicing lawyer based out of Toronto, Canada. On this podcast, we explore leading lifestyles and the work of the most experienced practitioners that I could find. And on this episode, we really got what we were looking for. More on our guest in a second. Just to say that if you want more details about our guest or the CPD hours that this podcast qualifies for, please visit the show notes wherever you listen to your podcasts or on my website, charneylegal.ca. About our guest today, Stanley G. Fisher, Queen's Council. We put the G there to distinguish him from the Israeli American economist and former governor of the Bank of Israel. No less, both Stanley Fishers are extremely distinguished. Our Stanley Fisher started as a litigator in the 60s before pivoting his career to becoming a leading arbitrator. Starting his career in the late 50s and early 60s, Stan's first position as a lawyer was as a clerk for the Chief Justice. Now, all lawyers know how coveted these positions are, clerkships. And I start by asking, Stanley, how did this come about? You must have been such a bright star, even back then, starting out your career.
0: Um, well, I, I didn't know anything about the clerkship uh, until one day I got called by the director of the bar admission course. Uh, now, remember, this is after articling. Uh so uh it would have been in nineteen sixty 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 one or sixty one sixty two, I'm not sure now. Right. Uh that um I spent with the Chief Justice. And uh he called me into his office to ask me if I would like to work for the Chief Justice uh as his law clerk. I knew nothing about the position, but uh I, I quickly found out about it and uh, jumped at it. I thought it was a great opportunity, even though I I had been asked to uh, rejoin the firm that I articled with, but they understood and uh, and told me that uh, they might not have a position for me if I uh, didn't come immediately. And I said, "Well, I'll take my chances." And I. Subsequently, uh, joined McMillan Bench after I finished uh, my clerkship. Right. It was a wonderful year. There was there was one person for the Court of Appeal and one person for the High Court. Uh, the The position was uh, you were assigned to the Chief Justice. You were his his clerk, uh, but you got work from other other judges. Similarly, for the High Court. Uh, My classmate, Steve Borens, who later became uh, Justice Borens, he clerked for uh, Chief Justice McCrure, and he too worked for other members of the high court.
1: So at that point, that must have given you a good base to start your career in litigation. Is that right? And when you went back to Macmillan afterwards, is, is that really what you did?
0: I went to Macmillan after, uh, during the bar admission course, uh, I met Sam Grange, who was one of the instructors in, in the in real estate transactions. And um, Sam offered me a job at Macmillan Bench. And I jumped at the chance because I was very fond of Sam. And uh, he later became a judge in, on the Court of Appeal. Uh, A very wonderful human being, a wonderful guy, a great mentor for me. And so uh, when I finished my clerkship, I joined Macmillan Bench in 1962, I believe it was. Uh, And uh, joined his litigation department uh, until January 1975, when he went to the bench and I then became the virtual head of the litigation department at that time at the tender age of 39. Wow. Uh, it was uh, a daunting experience. I can tell you that.
1: Yeah. Can, can you talk about your growth and learning experience and, and kind of uh, intense lifestyle, I would assume in those early years from 62 to 75, you know, how, how does a lawyer go from junior associate to leading a department at a major firm?
0: That's a very, very good question. Um, in my early years, uh, I, I was quite arrogant, quite aggressive, uh, quite militant. And I can remember, and I've told this story a number of times, about uh, the way in which I drove poor Sam Grange crazy uh, with uh, some of my aggressive behavior both as a, a partner in the a young associate and then partner in the firm. Um, uh, I always thought we could have done better. I always thought we we uh, could get uh, more work. Uh, I always thought we could win more cases if only he would uh, become more aggressive. And um uh, I, I have so many tales to tell about uh, the number of times I was junioring for him, uh, and uh, looking back at it now, made such stupid comments, um, but I guess that's how we all learn, by being wrong and being stupid.
1: Yeah. You, you make it sound like there's no place for aggression in, in litigation, at least uh, for a mature litigator. Is Is that right? <laughs>
0: Um, Well, looking back at it now, I realize that uh, I could have been a lot more civil in the way in which I conducted litigation, Uh, but we were all brash in those days. Uh, one One of my favorite stories and one of my favorite people was Doug Laidlaw, who was known as a junkyard dog. He was the, uh, I guess, the second most senior person, third most senior person at McCarthy's at the time. And uh, Doug, Doug is is a uh, is a legend in his own right. Unfortunately, killed at a very young age uh, in a stupid accident that happened on the Gardner when uh, he was changing the tire on his car and he was uh, hit by a speeding car and killed. But Doug and I had many uh, cases where we battled each other, uh, and in the courtroom uh, we we fought it out, and then we'd end up at a squash court somewhere. And uh, he he was a very dear friend, and I can remember on one sub one summer day getting a call from Doug, and I, he asked me what I was doing. I said I'm pushing paper. The courts were then closed in those days. During July and August, called Long Vacation, courts were closed, and uh, most of the barristers went off for the summer. The judges certainly went off for the summer. He called me up and asked me what I was doing, told him I was pushing paper. He said, uh, How about coming out sailing with me? And I went out sailing with Doug, and I had one of the highlight days of my life with uh, Doug. He was he was the total opposite as a friend than he was in a courtroom, and I learned a lot from him because he was a little older than I was, um, but he was he was brash, and there's many many stories about his brashness.
1: Wow, it's so nice. That's you call the the opposing litigator your friend in court, so you you really lived that up. If he,
0: he was a friend. There were other, there were other friends as well who. Uh, I can remember with great fondness uh, people. Um, I I an, analogize uh, practicing law in those days uh, to the NHL when there were six teams. Uh, everybody knew the the, uh, the litigators, and uh, we we fought it out in the courtroom, but we were all. Friendly in in more ways than one. We were nobody had to teach us civility in those days. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't we didn't carry grudges outside the courtroom, mm-hmm. but we fought with a great deal of grudge.
1: Sounds like uh, there was a lot of mutual respect there. They were. Uh, just uh, if you can take a moment there and comment on the legal market back then as well in the 60s, you say you all knew each other. I mean, junior lawyers starting now, it's, it's a lot more competitive and it's harder to get to know everyone, if you will. Um, what, what was it like practicing in such a you know, small, everyone knows everyone environment?
0: I think I think all the young lawyers took their cue and their their uh, the way in which they practiced their modus operandi from their respective seniors. So there was a there there was a senior at uh, Tilly Carson, and there was a senior at uh, Macmillan Bench, and uh, the people who practiced under the senior learned from the senior. And learned uh, the way of the world from from the senior. So mm-hmm. you learn more, you learn more from the habits of your senior than you did from anything else. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I would say it was a pretty tight club in those days. Um, the uh, certainly amongst the senior lawyers, there was just I, I would say. 20, at the most, 25 senior lawyers who carried the, the litigation bar. Uh, to give you an example, uh, when I first started practicing, legal aid was truly legal aid. It was something that was organized by the senior members of the bar. Uh, the secretary in the sheriff's office uh, would call one of the twenty twenty-five senior lawyers and say, I need somebody to do a break and enter uh, on Monday morning or a, or a theft under or a theft over. Uh, can you get one of your juniors to go and see your client at uh, 10 o'clock uh, or tomorrow morning? And, uh, Our firm, uh, Sam Grange, was one of the participants in the so-called legal aid program. And so I, as the next person on the list, uh, would would, uh, have an opportunity to do legal aid because Sam would walk into my office on Friday afternoon, say, and tell me that I was doing a break and enter on Monday morning. And over the weekend, would I go and see my client at the Don jail? And I would... I would always complain to him about doing things like that, accepting uh, mandates like that. I always felt that I had more important things to do on the weekend than prepare for a case on Monday morning. Um, But having complained, I would then go and see my new client uh, on Saturday morning at the Don jail and then appear in court on Monday, even though I had something totally different planned. Uh, He made sure that I did it and then... I did the same thing to people as I grew up.
1: Uh, Let let me just ask you, uh, you know, these days you're practicing one area of law, you're a commercial civil litigator or you, you know, take the criminal side of things or you're a solicitor. You sound like you were a a commercial civil litigator on the one hand, and then on the other hand, they're sending you to a criminal court. Was that kind of common just to do a bit of everything? Because that's yes. a bit, uh, it was, right? I get all the yes. experience you can.
0: Yes, I, it was, and, and I did. Uh, I didn't do a lot of criminal work, but, uh, and certainly no major stuff, but I certainly did family law. Um, I had my share of uh, family cases, custody, divorce. Um, as part of my commercial real estate practice. uh, By by that, I mean litigation practice. Mm -hmm. So, yes, we did. We did everything.
1: Okay. Really unbelievable how you do everything and then grow into a real expert in one specific area. Uh, Having said that, is there any advice you would give to a a young grad at this point, a, a, a freshly minted lawyer, who maybe wants to follow in your footsteps, what kind of advice would would you give them?
0: Well, the advice I would give is to try and get as much experience as you possibly can in every conceivable field, recognizing that it's very hard to get litigation experience now. I'm very mindful of that. I've served on a number of committees where that subject has been discussed. (laughs) Uh, the vanishing trial uh, is, it's well-known cases. We've priced ourselves out of the market, largely. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I i pride myself in saying that long before anyone thought about ADR, uh, I saw it coming and I, I wanted to get, more arbitration and mediation work as part of the litigation practice at Macmillan Bench. Uh, it was seen as being soft on litigation, soft on advocacy, uh, but uh, I would say to a young person today, prepare yourself to do more ADR as part of your litigation practice. I think it's, uh, particularly in the commercial area, it's the, it's the operate, it, it's the operation of the future. And it is right now, um, more and more commercial cases are going to the arbitration route, arbitration and mediation route. Uh, it's, it's because, uh, litigation has become so expensive. It's, uh unless you're prepared to operate on a one-size-fits-all basis, which is what litigation became, and for many cases, uh, it just didn't work. Uh, Just to give you an example, uh, in my day, we had motions, we had discoveries, we had productions, and then we'd have fights about productions and and, uh, questions not answered on discovery, but... In the end, at the end of the day, so little is about those interlocutory proceedings. So little of it is important, but it's costly. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's where the young lawyers in my day cut his teeth. Um, but with the benefit of hindsight, um, I realize now as an arbitrator that and I try to discourage people from spending a lot of time on discoveries, on production of document fights, uh, and to cooperate, to be more cooperative on on all of the pre-hearing aspects of litigation. And and thank goodness, I think most of the the bar now in adversarial matters recognizes that. So it it fits better with an arbitration. Uh, kind of set up. Um, so I would say, in answer to your question in a roundabout way, I would say that uh, the way to get experience, uh, if you have any chance to do uh, criminal work, to do, to do everything that you possibly can in order to get experience in a, in a uh, courtroom setting, in an arbitration setting, uh, that's the way to go. Mm-hmm. Not easy.
1: Yeah, you're getting the right experience, absolutely. Um, do you think litigation is a prerequisite for arbitration or are there people who come to it from a more reconciliatory point of view, therapeutic maybe? Is there that angle or is it uh, usually former litigators?
0: Um, well, that too is an interesting question because Many of the people who are doing arbitrations are senior litigators. Uh, there are many now younger lawyers who are doing it and're doing it very well, but they come from a litigation background but but in many ways uh, litigators have to be retrained to do arbitration. They have to get they have to get to understand that the process is quite a bit different uh it's it's not that it's um that it's soft or that it's uh uh, a different tempo it's it's more trying to get at the gut issues quickly in as efficient a manner as possible Mm -hmm. um Litigation in the courts, I I found, by the very nature of the rules of practice, was long, uh, was um, complex, unnecessarily complex. I think it was encouraged by the judges. I think it was encouraged by the lawyers. I think the rules of practice encouraged it, whereas arbitration... You're with one arbitrator that the arbitrator runs the show from the beginning and is constantly able to encourage people, force people to focus on the issues and, and get down to business. It's so much better.
1: It sounds judicial. You know, I, you're, you're acting as a little bit of a judge. I wanna touch upon something I find very, very interesting. You mentioned the vanishing trial. So many uh, call themselves litigation lawyers have never gone to trial, as you've mentioned, due to the cost and and other such reasons. You're one who has gone to trial and you've even been to the Supreme Court. Can you share with us a case uh, or two perhaps that you litigated at the Supreme Court and uh, specifically give us a bit of the background emotion Building up to and going into the Supreme Court, what was it like?
0: Um, I was in the Supreme Court as a junior, uh, probably within the first two years of uh, of being called to the bar. Uh, at that time, uh, there was a large Admiralty practice at Macmillan Bench, and Frank Garrity was the the head boy doing litigation. Um, and Frank brought me into one of his cases. Uh, I was, and the practice at that time was always for the senior to give the junior some piece of the argument. And uh, so I had a small piece of the argument in the case that I went uh, went with uh, Frank Garrity on. And uh, I was terribly nervous uh, when those doors opened and the uh, in the two cases that i 'm thinking about, the uh, nine judges walked in, uh, you felt as though you were suddenly uh, it was almost like the gates of heaven opening up, and you were suddenly confronted with the majesty of, of these people. Um, and I can remember uh, when it was my turn to get on my feet. Uh, it was very hard to get my feet to stop my legs to stop trembling. Um, but it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, it was not the way it is today. There were, there were no time limits. So you, you started your argument wherever you felt it was, uh, appropriate and you were given a tremendous amount of latitude and, um, they were particularly kind to young lawyers in the Supreme Court. That's not the case in the court of appeal in my day. The court of appeal was, uh, was ruthless. It was made up. of, And I'm thinking back to the early sixties. It was made up of judges who had no difficulty insulting, um, cutting you short, uh, telling you that they'd, uh, they knew the papers Uh Uh, later on. I was uh, fortunate to have led in a case that I didn't argue in the Court of Appeal, but I did argue in the Supreme Court of Canada. And I'm very, very pleased to tell you that I stood up and Bora Laskin was uh, presiding as the chief. Uh, it was a seven-person court, and I can remember it very well. Bora Laskin was my friend, my teacher, my mentor, and now he was on the Supreme Court of Canada as my judge and uh, I got up, I was appellant and before I had a chance to open my mouth, Bora said, speaking for myself, Mr. Fisher, there is no merit in this appeal. (laughs) I thought he was kidding. And I said in response, I guess I'm going to have to roll up my sleeves and work a little harder. <laughs> well and I'm happy to tell you that I turned them all around and won. Well, so you got you got a
1: lot more comfortable since your days of the shaking leg.
0: I did. I did. I got a lot more comfortable. Yeah.
1: Any cases you want to mention there that you're proud of the precedent you set or or the outcome in particular? You, you don't have
0: to if you don't want to. <laughs> um the outcome well, one of, the, uh, one of the cases, one of the mandates that I had was uh, my involvement in the trust company fiasco, Crown Trust, Gray Trust, Seaway Trust. Um, I was on a mini-sabbatical in 1982, and uh, my mini-sabbatical was spent in Israel. I was there for three months, and while I was gone... Uh, I didn't get any Canadian news, but in December of 82, uh, I happened to see a small item in the newspaper about, uh, the Saudis had purchased 500, I think it was 500, maybe it was 5,000 units of apartment buildings, uh, I think it was, five, no, it was $500 million worth of real estate in Toronto. And uh, there was great concern, great outcry, because the fear was that all the tenants in these buildings were about to have their rent increased. Uh, that was the item that I saw in the newspaper. And I came back in December of 1982 to Toronto I was quite concerned about whether I was going to have any practice left because I had turned over all my files. And the first thing I was thrust into was um, the retainer that we had from the Ontario government to uh, act for the uh, the Trust and Loans uh, Department, uh, the Ministry, you should say, and uh, it was the Ministry of Consumer Affairs. Uh, because the concern was that Crown Trust had been used as the vehicle for the acquisition of these apartment buildings. And there was great suspicion about who was behind the transaction. Was it Saudis? Was it not Saudis? And uh, I went into that file in December of 1982 and, and barely was able to lift my head for about three years after that. Uh, as we went through the process of uncovering um, what was really behind the so-called Saudi purchase, it wasn't Saudis at all. Uh, It was uh, quite a scam transaction that that had been entered into with the sole purpose of taking money out of the trust companies, uh, raising the rents of all the tenants. Uh, And uh, so a couple of people went to jail as a result of the transaction. Uh, the uh, Ontario government took over the operation of the trust companies. Um, the um, fair amount of money was lost in the course of uh, administering the all the mortgages that were taken back by the trust companies. And it was quite a... Uh, quite a long and arduous affair. Uh, at the time, there were many aspects to it that were humorous. Um, a fellow, and let me just share this with you uh, as a humorous story. We were all at the office working on uh, every day of the week. We, we worked seven days a week, almost uh, 24-7. Wow. And one Sunday morning, I was in the office and I got a telephone call from Ian Outerbridge, who was acting for Lenny Rosenberg, who was the principal behind the so-called Saudi purchase. And um, he said to me, uh, I understand that your client, the government, is going to introduce legislation in the House tomorrow to, uh, to take over the trust companies. And uh, I said, well, I, I can't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day. You know, my client, the Ontario government, is not uh, prepared to go public with all of its plans. And he said, unless you're prepared to give me assurances that you're not going to introduce legislation in the House tomorrow, I have a judge standing, I have the chief justice standing by at Osgood Hall. I'll meet you there in a half an hour. I thought, what is going on? Anyway, we marched up to Osgoode Hall. The Chief Justice was waiting to hear us. And uh, Ian Outerbridge said, I just uh, had a telephone conversation with my friend a half an hour ago. I asked him for an undertaking that the Ontario government would not act tomorrow in the House. And he refused to give me that undertaking. And I said, that's, that's absolutely right, <laughs> it's true. And I said, if, if the court was about to issue an, an injunction to restrain the Ontario government from acting in the House tomorrow, you're going to have a clash that likes of which you've never seen.
1: <laughs> uh-huh. Unbelievable. And and representing the government that that sounds so lofty for a, a junior, so to speak. They just approached the firm. They were long time uh, clients of the firm. How how does it come about representing the government?
0: Well, I was not then a junior. Nineteen eighty two, um, I was. Uh, it was probably around 1983, 84 by this time. Um, the uh, mandate came in from one of the other senior partners in the firm, who was a very close friend of one of the ministers, the Minister of uh, Consumer Affairs at that time. And uh, it was Bob LG at the time, I, I remember him very well. Yeah. Um, and um, I was in right from the beginning in all of the meetings, and then I was the senior litigator on the file. so. I got a great deal of experience. I had a team of lawyers across the country who were working for me, and uh, it was it was quite something. That's quite true. something. We yeah. had to shut down. We had to shut down the outbound wicket of Crown Trust at that time. Crown Trust was a major national entity, and um, it had offices uh, throughout the country. And I was getting telephone calls from lawyers who said, I need to close a real estate deal tomorrow and you've shut down the outbound Wicket. I can't, my client can't get access to money to close the deal. And so I had, I had a number of problems on my hands. I'll never forget. And the newspapers were screaming at the government for having taken over the trust companies without, without due process. At that time it was considered without due process
1: uh, anyways that goes all the way to the supreme court a case like that Is it, was that it,
0: referenced? It, it it did not go all the way to the supreme court um well, there are there's so many stories uh there was I'm, a criminal sure. side to it there was a civil side to it there was the liquidation of all the uh mortgages that the trust companies had taken on um, in order to try and recover the funds that had, had uh, gone out the door. It was quite a scheme that, that these people had dreamt up. Yeah. Uh, the way in which it worked was the, the uh, Landlord and Tenant Act permitted, tenants, uh, permitted landlords to increase the rent if they could demonstrate that the cost of carrying the property had gone up. So if you loaded up the property with mortgages and you could show that the, the cost of carrying the property was so much greater, then you could increase the rent or well, once you could increase the rent, uh, then you could justify the higher price uh, for the value of the asset. Right, And that, that's the way the, the little scheme worked. Lucky
1: luckily for all of us, that didn't work out and uh, definitely in today's day and age, they would not fly with With the uh, rent rent issues and all that, um, very thank you for sharing those anecdotes you know you don 't hear often from people with Supreme Court experience and representing government, so those are all uh, fascinating anecdotes and i 'm sure you could go on uh, you know with stories for forever about these these uh, experiences that you have but uh, i guess i 'll just talk about what I know about you, uh, and that is I read uh, norm Backel's book. And uh, also had him on the pad- podcast. He uh, mentioned I should speak to you. So in in his book, he mentions how uh, they they approached you as a senior litigator to join the firm, and uh, ultimately you came along. So my question that I like to ask is, what is your favorite failure that has contributed to towards your success? Now it doesn't have to be. The Heenan-Blakey failure, it could be any failure that has contributed towards, towards your success, but is there anything that stands out that think, oh, maybe I shouldn't have made that Heenan-Blakey decision or any other decision that has really led you to the successful uh, lawyer arbitrator you are today? Um,
0: well, I always say that the, the, the best teacher, the best, uh, the best lesson in life is the, is the lesson of failure. Um it it certainly has been true in my life. Uh, I've learned the most from my mistakes. Uh as I said to you earlier, uh being the brash, aggressive uh young man that I was in my in my early 30s uh certainly has taught me an awful lot about humility uh and the necessity for humility in the in the practice of law. I think it's a it's a wonderful profession that we have. Um, I, I think that um, learning the lessons of failure has been probably the most important part of my growing experience. Not only the failure in, in uh, cases, but the failures uh, that I've experienced in life as a as a husband, as a parent, um, as a son of immigrant parents, all of those experiences I think have been the lar- the, the most important part of my growth uh, in life. And I think probably most important in the contribution to my growing experience and whatever success I've had I think I'm able to see life a lot differently today than I did when I was 30 and I think all for the better
1: yeah I couldn't agree more that uh, you should learn from your failures and failures should ultimately lead you to success but just to go back to it is there any one that stands out
0: Is there anyone that stands out? Uh, (laughs) It could be a
1: case you mentioned, could be a professional decision, but uh, I'm 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 ultimately looking to draw out a lesson from you, from that failure. More than the actual failure is what lesson you learned from it.
0: Well, I can tell you about one experience that I had as a brash young lawyer. Um, I was involved in a libel action where I was junior, so many stories uh, uh, come out of that one particular case. Um, I carried that case from beginning to end. I carried it through all of the pleadings, all through the interlocutory stages of the action. In a very early motion that was brought by the plaintiff side, we were acting for Time magazine and, uh, at a very early stage in the, in the proceedings, there was a motion brought to strike our pleading. Uh, I was unsuccessful. I immediately served a notice of appeal and the other side, who was a senior counsel who was carrying the the file right from the beginning. I was junior counsel. I was carrying the file. Uh, He um, called me up after I served the notice of appeal and he said, you're not going to appeal this decision. Are you this, this, puny little motion that we had and I said yes I'm going to appeal this I have instructions to appeal and he said well what if I agree not to take out the order and I said well if you don't take out the order then I don't have to worry about appealing it so yeah that's fine so he agreed not to take out the order and I agreed not to appeal well several years later when we came to trial and the trial was before the chief justice at the time Uh, And we lost the jury in the second day because one of the jurors couldn't understand a word of English. And and so uh, the trial judge said, we have to start again with a new jury unless, of course, both sides agree to allow me to try it alone. And uh, against my better judgment, the senior lawyers agreed to to go with him alone. And um, so comes the end of the trial. Uh, and we're in argument, and I had my little piece of the argument, um, and, and I should go back for a moment. During the course of his argument, the other side's argument, uh, there was a comment made about the pleadings. And the judge said, I would have thought that this was covered in the paragraph 10 of the pleadings. And the opposing counsel said, uh, yes, as a matter of fact, uh, I brought a motion on that pleading, and I was successful. And, uh, and he dropped it there. So I said to my senior that, that night, when I get up to do my little part of the argument in the morning, I am going to call out that lawyer for what he did in telling a half story. To me, it was outrageous that anyone would, that anyone would tell that kind of story. So, the following day, he said, my senior said to me, you're not going to, you're not going to say a word about it. And I said, oh, oh, yes, I am. And he said, no, you're not. I'm telling you, you're not. So I got up the next day and um, I did my little part on the legal argument. And then I said, now, my Lord, yesterday there was a mention made of a motion on the pleadings. And I'd like to tell you about what really happened. And the judge said to me, it's not necessary for you to comment on that, Mr. Fisher. And I said, no, I don't think your Lordship understands. I think, I think I better tell you what that story is all about. He said, Mr. Fisher, it's not necessary for you to tell me anything about that. And I tried one more time. And finally, the judge said to me, Mr. Fisher, if when I was a junior at the bar, a judge had said to me, it's not necessary for you to deal with something. I would gladly have sat down, whereupon Sam Grange, who was leading the case, grabbed me by my gown and literally pulled me into my seat.
1: Very nice. Yeah. So
0: that's a little little vignette of, of a story from which I learned a lot. I was ready to call him out. I was ready to call him a liar, a cheater, a, Every name in the book um, and and of course, it was unimportant
1: right. some things are just better left unsaid if it 's not productive and helpful, drop it right right that 's what the judge was ultimately trying to say. What impresses me most about uh, you and your career is the longevity. You've been practicing for so long well before I was alive. Is there a a key, a secret to that? And uh, also, if you want to comment on the work-life balance, how you managed to maintain that after all these years? You mentioned your sabbatical in Israel. Was that something you did every few years? Or how do you maintain to practice uh, somewhat a contentious area of law uh, for all these years?
0: Well, if you were to ask my kids, they, they would say that my balance uh, was wanting. Uh, but I, um, somebody who was uh, alive and senior when uh, I started practicing said, the law is a very jealous mistress. Uh, we worked very hard when I first graduated in, in uh, well, When I first started practicing in 1962, uh, the junior lawyers had uh, carried an awful lot of weight. Mm -hmm. Um, But as time went on, uh, I guess we managed to uh, get away for a month's vacation. Uh, I can remember pretty much every year as my children were growing up, taking them taking a month off in the summertime um, and we we all talk about that that part of our lives uh, to this day we had some wonderful trips um, but it is hard to keep that balance it's very hard particularly as you as a young lawyer it's very hard to keep that balance because there's so much work and you're you don't have the tools to be efficient at it as you as you should be uh obviously every time you you come across a new experience a new challenge uh you feel that you've got to get every every jot and every tittle right um, I can remember. I can remember the first time I had to let go of doing a release after a, after a lawsuit was over and the payment was made. Uh, I thought that doing the release was part of my job, and I and I had to do it. Uh-huh. It was sort of like the the young doctor who was given the task of sewing up at the end of an operation. You know, that was that was sewing up. I finally learned that I could let go of that part of the task to somebody else. I also learned that I could let go of part of the argument as it had been done for me. I could, I could let go of it as I became a senior, I found it harder and harder to sit back and listen to the junior making the small submissions that I was, um, that I had handed off to him or her. Uh, but it was uh, part of the training. Longevity, Uh, I started doing arbitrations probably about uh, 10 years, at least 10 years ago, to maybe 15 years ago uh, as a neutral, and uh, I found that it gave me a whole new lease on life. I I loved it. I love it to this day. Um, I, I so enjoy it. I have a whole new appreciation of counsel and counsel's work. Uh, you know, the the arbitrator goes home at uh, 5.30 and uh, council has to keep working. That's when the day begins in preparation for tomorrow. And I know that because I see what happens the next day, the recovery for the next day's uh, proceedings. Um, And I remember it well. So, yes, balance is important. Perspective is important. Having outside interests is important. Um, not, not allowing yourself to be totally consumed in the practice of law. And if I, if I can say anything, I, I see young people today are far more balanced than I ever was. Right. Uh, it's amazing to me how many young people are involved in other things besides litigation or besides doing the, the, the necessary work in an office. They're engaged in community. They're engaged in um, pro bono projects. Uh, they're, they're, I'm amazed, and they're smarter than I ever was. I don't think I could get into law school today.
1: I don't know about that. You could teach law school, never mind.
0: It's amazing to me how qualified young people are uh, and have so many different interests in, in their lives. So I'm probably the last one to give advice to to young lawyers.
1: I, I couldn't disagree more because you have a lot of good advice to give, and uh, we're all ears to accept it. So, thank you for sharing, and uh, hopefully, you should continue to share. This has been a very interesting uh, discussion. Like I said, you have a lot of uh, fascinating. Uh, deep, wide experience uh, in the Toronto legal market. Um, I, I could chat a lot more with you about it, but I'll leave you with one last word before we end. Uh, I usually frame it and say if there was one message, whether it's a tweet or a billboard that you would like to send out to millions of people, what would you put on the billboard? or what, what message would you send out there?
0: Um I was going to say civility, but um, having having gone through the experience with my dear friend Joe Groya and the professional misconduct charge against him, uh, uh, alleging that he was unprofessional and uncivil uh, in a particular case, I would say that... uh, you can act for your client in a very passionate way while at the same time uh, carrying on a civil, a civil relationship with opposing counsel. It's, 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 it's so easy to get carried away with the cause that you represent. Uh, But at the same time, if you keep your perspective, it's it's a difficult balance, but it's one that must be maintained.
1: Yeah, I I know I said that was my last question, but I I have to follow up on that. (laughs) and say that one of the reasons I don't practice litigation, I'm a solicitor, transactional work, wills and estates, real estate transactions. And I stay away from litigation because I get emotionally invested. I I take on the issue of my client and I feel like it comes home with me. So that was your last words of wisdom over there is don't do that, exactly. Don't get too emotionally invested and maintain perspective is, is what you said. What, what perspective, can you dig a little deeper of how, how you should look at a situation, a client comes with their most pressing issue, the issue that keeps them up at night? How do you kind of separate between this is how I'm representing them and then I go home at night and, and it doesn't, it's not your issue anymore?
0: Oh, I, wish, I wish I had the answer to that. That's what I'm telling you. It's not easy. It's a very difficult thing to do. Right. You do become invested in your client's cause. It becomes a matter of almost life and death for, for, for me as a, as a litigator, it was always something that I took very seriously, Uh, but I had to learn over the years. and, And that's part of what I've been saying is that, that you can be both passionate about your client's cause, but never lose sight of the fact that it's not your cause and you, you don't have to, Uh, become you don't have to become so hostile to the other side. Being an adversary doesn't mean becoming hostile. Doesn't mean losing your perspective. Uh, And I had some terrific battles with people I subsequently became dear friends with. Mm -hmm. And um, and they did the same thing. They, they, they felt the same way. And I'm thinking of people who are no longer with us who we battled, we battled it out and uh, we took every case and every cause so personally. And, um, and it was a, it was a matter of life and death, but, um, I think as we got older, we realized that uh, we were in a profession, we were privileged to be in a profession uh, where you could battle and you could be civil. And uh, I, I guess that that tempered our, our lives and our outlook. Yeah. So I, I appreciate your question. And I, I can't, say i can't say that i have the magic potion for a young lawyer to, to do a, to do both to be passionate to be ferocious as an advocate uh, at the same time to maintain your balance and to be civil it's not easy Hello to and do, welcome back. Thank you for listening you gotta, to the end. you got to try. you got to learn to After these interviews,
1: it. I started asking right. guests for book recommendations. Well, thank you for that. And Stan Lee was kind <laughs> enough you've been, to provide you've been to great. you, which I'll list in the show and notes, and uh, I appreciate your time be and your stories, stories you and your wisdom your podcasts, that you And uh, perhaps we'll chat again soon. I look, I
0: look, look forward to seeing you on that. the next one. I look forward to chatting again with you. Thanks.